turn with me in your Bibles to the Song of Songs. It's on page 560 of the Bibles in front of you there. You'll see it as the Song of Solomon uh, titles there. And I'm going to give you a moment to, to find that, maybe peel the pages apart, because it's probably been a little while since uh, those pages have seen the light of day. And uh, we're going to continue in this genre of wisdom literature. One professor that I had dearly respect, he said, Wisdom, it is the skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. So the, how, how to rightly apply this wisdom is the art of living in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord. And the Song of Songs contributes much in our understanding of human desire, sexual desire, God's boundless uh, love that is pictured when a man and woman pursue and enjoy one another uh, in this dance of love. And uh, some more, lots more introduction to come here, but uh, let's read the first four verses and then pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I've been praying a lot over this this week, and I am so grateful for your prayers uh, for me as we uh, look upon uh, this beautiful poetry together. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise for your word to us. Lord, you look upon and are pleased with those who are humble and contrite in heart and tremble at your word. And so as we come to a word that maybe takes us back a little bit, we wonder what, what do we do with this? Lord, we look to you and we ask for your help. We need you to illumine our hearts to what is true and good and right. Oh, Lord God, show us Christ. Show us his love for his bride. Through this most beautiful of pictures you've given to us. Lord, guide our thoughts and our application of this song on this morning and in these weeks to follow. Lord, we submit to you and to your word because it is, it is what we need. It is good and it is glorious. Guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you grew up in a home where there were uh, two parents, maybe you're in that home now, parents are around, did you ever walk in on them while they were kissing? Um, or glance in the other room while they were kissing? How did you respond to that? Uh, maybe like, well, maybe I'm not supposed to see this. Or, well, wait, maybe I am supposed to see this. There's kind of this, um, maybe, maybe a little uneasiness, maybe an embarrassment, not for yourself, but more so for your, for your parents. Um, like, this is weird, but it's a good thing. Um, my kids experience this all the time, so it's fun to watch them respond to it. Uh, Mom and dad are kissing again? What? Um, but don't we all experience this in some degree as we open this love poetry that is the Song of Songs? No other book in the Bible 
has this much material on the theme of love and the desire that comes with growing love between uh, two people. Desire that's stirred up, desire that's frustrated, desire that is satisfied. This book is all about desire from beginning to end and the the intimacy that the Creator God has built in uh, to His image bearers, how that's to be pursued and enjoyed. So kind of like glancing at a couple, sneaking a kiss, we may blush a little bit at this language, but we know it's good. We know it's right. Um, And poetry like this is intended to to really stir our imaginations. We have pretty vivid imaginations. Um, it heightens our emotions. It, we're rightly moved by this, just as we, we find in the Psalms, all 150 Psalms. This song is meant to affect us and form us by the use of, of the poetry. And I refer to this song in the singular because that's how it's introduced. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So does that mean Solomon wrote this? Does that mean it was written about Solomon? Does that mean it was written for Solomon? We don't know the answer to that exactly. Um, But indicators, as we move along here, is even though Solomon is referenced several times, he's likely not the author of this material. Maybe written about him, but given his experience and the many wives that we know Solomon had and the exclusive language we find here, also unlikely Solomon is used more as a comparison when he's referenced, more as a the sort of ideal figure when he's mentioned. So it's much more likely that uh, this love poetry is included in the wisdom literature because it is in the tradition of Solomon, written during his uh, the time of his reign, sometime during his life as part of this uh, collection of wisdom. But it is the song One song of love between a young man and a woman who want to enjoy their love to the absolute fullest. And over the last hundred years or so, that that has not been the dominant position on how to view this book. I want to make that clear right up front. Most commentators, at least the last hundred years, some of whom I have a real respect for, they sort of treat this as a collection of different love poems. Um, Not necessarily the same man or woman talking to each other. It's just different stages of a relationship and and different poetry. Um, And it does highlight themes, desire, fulfillment, struggles that are all found uh, among those who are in love. And we can certainly appreciate that and the themes that are there. But I'm not taking that position that this is just a collection of varied poems. Um, There is a trajectory to this poetry It is moving somewhere. And we can follow the unique way that the man and the woman speak about their love. There's a refrain that will be repeated, not to awaken love until it pleases, at least three different times in this song at certain places. And the fact that it starts with the song of songs, that's telling. In the Old Testament, the inner chamber of the tabernacle and later the temple was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. This is where the king, this is where Yahweh would reside with his people. There's no place more holy. In the New Testament, uh, the risen Lord Jesus is identified as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the greatest of all. There's no greater king, no greater Lord. 
He's the superlative ruler. So that is the sense we find here in these opening words. This is the superlative song. It is the greatest song because its theme and its, uh, is that important and that uh, regarded. Um, so we're going to read this as a single unfolding drama between this young man and young woman. That, that's also going to determine how we uh, interpret this, uh, this love poetry on, on the spectrum of interpretation again. On one side, historically, the church has said this is exclusively an allegory. That this is about God and his people, Christ and his church, and everything we read is somehow picturing something about the church or about God. That's on one end of the extreme. On the other end of interpretation is this story is really just a love story between two people. Kind of a marriage manual, if you will. But we're not, we're not going to camp out in any of those extremes. We're going we're to wind our way in the middle. Um, where we see this is... Um, this is a book that can be enjoyed by all, should be enjoyed by all, whether you are married or single and hope to be married someday or you have been married. This is for all of God's people. Um, and it is, certainly, it is certainly not less than you know, about the relationship and the erotic love that can be enjoyed in marriage. It's not less than that, but it should propel our thoughts and our desires for something greater, for something more than that should move us to think upon the marriage that we have all been made for. Christ Jesus, our beloved bridegroom, the church, his bride, who awaits his return. Uh, so this poetry between lovers, it's, it's real and it's ideal. And those are concepts that I want us to keep in mind as we interpret this together. And we're going to ask, what is real about this relationship? How does it resonate with our experience? What is ideal what is good and right about what we are seeing here and then how does it propel our thoughts uh, to the greater love that God has uh, in Christ. So that, that's a lot of introductory material uh, up front here as, as we get going. But as we, as we look at these opening verses, this young woman, she's, she's showing how crazy she is about this man. And uh, thankfully the English translations, they have those little pronouns that you've probably seen there. Those aren't in the original uh, text. Those are provided by the translators looking at how the nouns and verbs uh, are, are put together. Uh, there's actually a gender that goes along with those nouns and the verbs. And so if there is feminine nouns and most of the verbs, then it's the man speaking of the woman. And if it's masculine nouns, then it is it is the she, it is the woman speaking of, of him or about him. So that's how they determined to do that. Boy, am I thankful that they did that in front of us because that would have been hard to figure out who's talking when as we read this. Um, but she's head over heels for this man and she's very clear about what her desire is. She doesn't want a little side hug, a little nose rub. No, she's very clear about what affection she's looking forward to. They're not together at this point but she wants him to kiss her. And then she recalls his smell. Isn't this interesting? Smells are pretty powerful and they trigger a lot of memories. I probably shared before about when my mother would fry liver and onions. And just thinking about that, it turns my stomach and I sort of get queasy because of that smell was a very unpleasant memory. Um, but for this, uh, for this young woman, the smell is pleasant. She likes his fragrance whatever kind of cologne he had. 
And this man is of good reputation, we see in verse 3. It only makes sense that all the girls are going to be swept away by this guy, but not if she can run away with him first. She's ready to, to run away with him, likens him to a, a king who has brought her into his chambers. Oh, that's right where she wants to be. Now, if you've been in love, if you know someone who has been in love, is that something you usually keep to yourself? Maybe initially. I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe initially there's sort of the, maybe the secret crush. You know, you keep it to yourself. Fear of what others may, may think. Uh, we've been somewhat conditioned for that. But if we're in love, it can be hard to think about anyone else or anything else. I remember back in Michigan, I went back to Michigan for a few weeks, and Katie and I were, we went out to Dutch Village, which was near where we lived, and we were sharing a dill pickle. Nothing says romantic meal like sharing a dill pickle. And it was over this dill pickle that I, I said, you know, would it be okay if our friendship was a more intentional, uh, maybe a little more, um, you know, more official and through uh, flushed cheeks? She said, yeah, yeah, that would be okay which I learned later was code for what planet have you been on? It's about time. Um, but after that, so I went back to school and that following semester, my grades were the worst they have ever been in my entire life. Now the classes were hard, but I'm guessing there was another correlation there. I had this young lady on my mind and she was okay with that. Wow. So this young woman is okay with sharing her love for this man. She wants... She wants her love to be known and celebrated by others. And we're going to hear this chorus of others breaking in, almost as if they're listening in to the heart's desire uh, and what is uh, heart's desires of this woman. Um, they affirm her beauty, that she is desirable. They, they're even willing to help in, in beautifying her appearance for her beloved, we read later in verse 11. Um, now, at this point, we haven't heard anything from the young man. We don't know about his response. We don't know how he's feeling. We don't even know if he's reciprocating this love. And in verses 5 through 7, we learn that she may be a little self-conscious. Not necessarily unworthy or undeserving of such love. She says, I'm, I'm very dark, but lovely. So she's acknowledging the challenges that she has had in caring for herself and how that, her own experience, her own background is affecting how she thinks about herself, may affect how this young man thinks of him. So let me get to verse 6. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They, were, they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So this young woman has been tanned by working outside. Um, likely from a family that has been is very poor and she needed to work outside or she was forced uh, to work outside uh, to help. But her soul is in love and she wants to find her shepherd in the middle of the day. And there, there's actually a subtle invitation here in verse 7. Will this shepherd choose her above the rest? It was, it was actually not uncommon for veiled women to go and, 
and find the shepherds for pleasure. This was all part of cultic business. So will she be singled out? Will she be more desirable to him and have his love exclusively? Right? And, and she's not waiting to find this out. She's, she's actually will, willing to risk veiling herself, the impression that that gives, to go and find him. And now he begins to play along. Verses 8 through 10. If you do not know a most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Uh, so now we know what he's thinking. Uh, yes, come, come and find me, my love. You stand out to me among all the rest. And we start to read these comparisons. We get to, to verses 9 and 10. These are going to continue throughout the whole song. Not intended to be taken as visuals. She didn't look like a horse. Um, these, are, these are figurative. Okay, they, they are, are showing just how great a value, how great of quality that each is to the other. They are the prize. They're the best of their kind. So this young woman is just swept away. He is her knight in shining armor. Uh, her king, and he longs for this distance between them to, to be bridged, to come together. Um, so here's where I want to pause for a second, um, a few seconds, and consider you know, what is real and ideal about this relationship. How can it shape our view of relationships and intimacy? So here's a young woman sharing her great love for a young man. And the man is reciprocating this love. There is an intense desire for the opposite sex. Male and female, each expressing this physical, uh, sexual desire for the opposite. Okay? And I know this may sound embarrassingly simple, but the most important place to begin is usually at the beginning. God has created male and female. Two genders. And they are there's physical emotional, chemical differences between these genders that are designed to attract and complement each other. Gender is, this is something that's determined at birth. And though the effects of sin in this world and upon our, our bodies can produce gender confusion at times, it cannot be altered. So to pursue altering one's gender to try to persuade another to do this is not only a blatant rejection of God's authority and power, it is abuse of a fellow human being to the highest order. Male and female, God created them. And he created them to be mentally, emotionally, physically attracted to each other. So here, here's another correction by the authority of God's word. A correction to the, the trends of the culture and the idols of our hearts. Because sin twists and affects everything about us, our bodies, our minds, our emotions, this is what we mean when we use that language of being totally depraved. This attraction between genders is now distorted. Desire can be distorted so that a male might be attracted to a male or female to female. Um, that may be the experience of someone in this room, those that you know. Um, this is very real. This is very powerful. 
But there's, there's something we, we must all understand about this attraction, whether that attraction is desired or not. This attraction, this same-sex desire, is a distortion. It's a disordering of God's good design. It has never been. It will never be God's desire that this disordered attraction remain or be considered normal for any human being. The same-sex desire itself, wanted or unwanted, is sin. It must be turned from. Um, Now, if this this is a part of your story, again, I'm not naive about this. If this is a part of your story, then please hear me as a brother in Christ. Um, You know, a Christian conversion doesn't mean this just goes away disappears Um, it could but that's not likely the experience that we've seen and observed okay indwelling sin that the flesh is going to bully and taunt and entice and threaten and accuse you with this type of attraction convincing you that perhaps nothing can change that you can no longer turn from these types of desires Don't believe that lie. Keep fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking to you as a brother in Christ. If you are bound to Christ, then greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. He is continuing His purifying work in your life down to the very core, the very affections and desires. You must put sin to death along with every other brother and sister in the church in putting sin to death. They may face a different distortion, a different twisted desire of what God has made so very good. Um, We all must mortify the flesh every day. Not just every day, every hour. Not just every hour, every minute. Um, That's not going to be easy. Not going to be less painful to do this. But joy is restored. Joy is restored in obedience. Peace is restored in in pursuing the glory of God with our affections and our desires, with all that we are. So please, please, if this is a part of your story, if this is something that is resonating with you, don't fight that battle alone. Um, Or somehow give in and and normalize this desire in your life. Um, Come talk with me. Come talk with a trusted friend. We want to hear of your experience and and share in this battle with you. The gospel is powerful. God's word is powerful. And we're going to fight with the sword of the Spirit. With God's word, we're going to fight together in prayer. Because united to Christ, that's where our identity rests, not in our sin. So something else we see in this very, very real relationship. This young woman... She's confident of her ability to be loved. She should be desirable, but there's still this self-consciousness. Her physical appearance is not maybe what she would like all the time. Certainly not what the world around her would say is an example of beauty. Um, I have to confess, as I read this love poetry and have read it in the past, my imagination and my cultural conditioning has painted a picture of this young woman as man is probably not all that accurate. You know, she's probably not going to grace the cover of the latest swimsuit edition. Or he's not going to grace the cover of 
whatever magazine of the sexiest men in the world might be. Um, not the most beautiful people we might imagine, but isn't that refreshing for us? That should be refreshing. Because that makes these lovers kind of like me and kind of like you. Maybe not always happy when we look in the mirror all the time. Maybe it's been that way for a long time, as long as you can remember. But here it is. They are, they are beautiful and lovely to one another. They're not looking for affirmation from a glass mirror. They're looking for affirmation from the one that they love, from the one who loves them. This woman is the most beautiful in the world to this man. He delights in her physical appearance. And we're going to hear a lot about that physical appearance, but there's, there's more to her than this. He knows her. He wants her. And this young shepherd is going to, to affirm her beauty with his words, and she's going to hang on every, every one because they are coming from him. So much here. So much here that needs to shape our evaluation of beauty and our, our, our culturally conditioned perception of beauty. We can beautify our bodies, but beauty is much more than this outward appearance. And there should be an attractiveness to that. That should be desirable for the man or woman of God. So we're not ignoring physical attraction you know, that, that's an important part of this love song, but there is, is so much more. When you're attracted to someone, looking for a potential spouse, do they treasure what is true and good? Have their hearts been captured by the love of God? Do they want to grow as a son or a daughter of God? Do they want to put sin to death? Are they honest enough to confess their struggles with sin? Well, if you are a man or woman of God and that's what you're seeing, that should be very attractive. And it may actually have the effect of making that woman or that man more physically attractive because you're learning who they are under the surface. So very briefly here, uh, verse 12 uh, going through verse 7. These two lovers go back and forth praising each other, each affirming their beauty. And I want to just read these verses and let the poetry have its full effect on us. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, the language here is just wow, wow. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Wow, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Oh, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Oh, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. Oh, sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Oh, 
Isn't that beautiful language? Just trying to outdo each other with compliments. And the language here helps us see the difference between the way a man and a woman actually experience uh, love. Um, She has consumed this shepherd's thoughts. Okay, he can't take his eyes off her in this language. It's entirely focused on her. Did you notice that? Sometimes we quib that you know guys have just one thing on their mind. Well, the shepherd boy sort of proves that in a sense. He wants her, but the language of the woman is more nuanced, which probably shouldn't surprise us either. Um, she she describes him and what he means to her. She he's the apple tree in the forest. She's protected and feels provided for by him. She finds pleasure. She finds pleasure in his pursuit of him. He brought me to the house of wine. His banner over me was love. Banners were used to identify a new clan or a new family. And so she is joyfully placing herself under him, within his family, under his authority. And we go back to verses 16 and 17. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. So a green couch is verdant, it's very alive. And so this young woman is thinking about fertility. She's thinking about a home with offspring. She wants to bear his children. But that day is, that day is coming. It's not here. In verses 5 through 7, she wants nothing more than to feel, uh, to feel his embrace. But he's not there. Again, how do we know that he's not there? Well, it's the language of verse 5. If the beloved is right there and you're sharing the same space, then you're not using language of lovesickness. Sustain me with these apples. Sustain me with raisins in the meantime, for I'm lovesick. These are sweet foods reminding her of her beloved um, and the consummation that awaits. Again, so what is real? What is ideal about what we can learn from this? Um, we note again the desire that this man, this woman have for each other, a sexual desire that is given by God and blessed by God as it moves towards uh, consummation in marriage. This desire is good. It is a glorious gift of God within the context that, that He provides. And here's where I don't think the church has done a super stellar job over the years in conveying this to the generations to come because of how powerful this desire is and its capacity to be misdirected, misguided, as we talked about a second ago. Come back to that. The church has been quick to say, stop, abstain, uh, don't go there, keep your purity ring on. When you're older, we'll talk about it. But for now, just don't go near it. And I think that scare attack, or scare approach really works for a little while. Um, but we're seeing that it doesn't work in the long run, both inside and outside the church. You tell your kids not to do something long enough, what are they going to want to do? What are they going to want to explore? Huh, I wonder what's, what's so mysterious about this. Um, so as a church, as families within the church, we need to magnify the beauty of this desire, the beauty of this big deal. 
Sexual desire and the fulfillment of, the de- of that desire in sexual union, that is God's idea. He designed it. He made all of the, the body parts and the chemical reactions that make sexual pleasure exciting and fun. Something that God made, and it is good and right to long for this. It's when this desire is distorted, when it's misdirected, not used for the glory of God, but for our own pleasure, satisfying our own lust in our hearts, that's when it destroys us. Um, I think of a couple other examples. God, God gives us the desire to eat, but you eat too much and in the wrong way. It will destroy you. He gives us the desire to work. You work too much and in the wrong way, it will destroy you. God knows what is best for us. And we are going to be most satisfied. We're going to find our greatest joy when we use what He's given in the context that He's given it. And so the Song of Songs is going to elevate, it is going to celebrate this lifelong, exclusive commitment of a man and woman in marriage. The very context for which the the power of this desire can be unleashed. So again, this is not a dirty subject. It is not unspiritual. Quite the opposite, in fact. It is good, right, appropriate, and even commanded at the proper time. So the young woman's aware of this proper time. Gives a warning in 2 verse 7. She's going to do this at uh, various times in the love song. Do not stir up or awaken love until it desires. Because of how powerful this desire is, it simply cannot be something to toy around with. It's powerful. I mean, the way that love moves us, what it moves us to do, you know, it moves us to that place where we are ready to just give ourselves completely and unashamedly to another person. That's not something you want to rush into. And because it can be very hard to turn. It can be very hard to stop. Some of us have been there. Maybe we're there now. We've followed that rush of sexual desire only to be crushed by guilt or shame when it's unleashed at the wrong time. This, this can happen outside of marriage. It can even happen inside of marriage where the focus of sexual desire is more on taking than giving oneself in service to a spouse. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Notice here, it does not say until you please or until you're ready. Do not stir up, not not until love is ready. I find that fascinating. So we need to lead our hearts. We should be leading our hearts, channeling our our sexual desire in a way that that pleases God. And yet there's so much a part of this that's, uh, that's outside of our control. Sometimes even, if I dare say, inconvenient ministry friend in Iowa, she, uh, we learned that she was determined she was going to stay single. Uh, she didn't want the attention and distraction of a relationship because she wanted, um, you know, that, that was going to mess with her plans in serving the Lord as a single woman. Well, guess what? She got to know a, a certain guy, and now the guy is her husband. And she's delighted about that, but not the plan that she had in mind. The, the cultural trend, both in and out of the church, is to delay marriage, the context for sexual fulfillment, to later in life. Okay, the average age for marriage in the U.S. right now is 32, and it's climbing. So we're, we're told by an individualized, 
consumer culture that marriage is just another thing to be consumed when you're ready, if you even consider that. Uh, Get all the education you can. uh, Get that right job that you're looking towards. Do whatever it is you want to do in life, which often includes sexual immorality because the desire doesn't go away. And then, you know, sort of the cherry on top of life, get married. But that, that does not align well with biblical wisdom and God's created purpose for us. Marriage is to be the foundation on which life is built and shared. Not this extra sort of bonus track to life. So again, I, here I think we're seeing intentionality. Marriage should be pursued intentionally, wisely, not delayed unnecessarily until we think we're ready. And here's where we trust God. We trust God to prepare us. We trust God to provide. Maybe a spouse that we're hoping to share life with, to serve with. But really, is that going to happen on our timeline? Um, We know some who want to remain single, and then they end up getting married. Others are single and desire marriage, but, but that wait continues. The Apostle Paul says there's great benefits to both marriage and singleness. If you're going to burn with sexual desire, pursue marriage where it can be unleashed in safety and devotion, commitment. But the wait here can be long. I want to acknowledge this, how painful this can be at times. I think of many who read this, this poetry. Actually, this is all of us to some degree. They're going to read this poetry and say, well, this is great, but that's not my experience. And it hasn't been this experience. I don't think it's ever going to be this type of experience. And this is an area where it can be very hard, maybe the hardest in life, to acknowledge that God is good and wise and is sanctifying each of us so very uniquely. He may be sanctifying you through singleness. He may be sanctifying you through marriage. Okay, there, there is no marriage in this world that is the song of songs on repeat. None. No marriage that's not without its trials and challenges. The Lord may may sanctify you through a broken marriage or the loss of a spouse. I mean, these, these are severe mercies that we will never understand. But know this, know this. God, God is writing your story. And it is, it is one, one chapter, one piece of his greater story of redemption that is enfolding you in his love. That's what he's about. And he is doing that in your life. Single, married, desiring marriage, beyond marriage. God is sanctifying us uniquely according to his love for us. We, we were made for more than what human marriage can provide. Let me say that again. We have been made for more than what human marriage can provide. I mean, this song of desire to, to love and be loved by another person, that's just a reflection of the deeper hunger we have for God's love. We need to love and be loved by our Creator God. He's a heavenly father who knows us completely. And as human beings, we share the most unique relationship in all creation with the creator. 
Maybe you hear that Old Testament language where the language of a man knowing a woman in the Old Testament, it's the language of intimacy and union that God has created for his image bearers. But it's reflection are knowing him. Now, so much of this love poetry, we'll start winding this down. It takes place in a rural setting where there are flowers and there are trees. There is vineyards. Each, each, each one, the man, the woman, praising the other in this vineyard of love. It's language we're going to hear over and over again. And that language brings us back to the garden of love. Echoes of Eden where the man and the woman shared life together in, in love and unashamed nakedness. There's one commentator who says the closest thing we get to being back to the Garden of Eden in the whole Bible is this song. A place of safety where desire and passion could be explored and enjoyed. But we know it didn't stay that way. That passion, love was, was misdirected away from God, disobedience, it fractured every relationship in the Garden. Now there's this shadow of shame that's cast over humanity. And now this, this good and right desire can be misdirected and abused. Selfishness, lust, greed, murder, that is all fruit of love's strong desire twisted and turned on its head. So we know and experience this. Um, yet this is not where the Creator leaves us. Through the coming of Christ, through the seed of the woman, God redeems, He restores every part of His creation back to its proper function, including this desire, this intimacy and companionship that He's designed us for. He's going to send His own Son to repair this vineyard of love. The vineyard, His, his people, they've been, they've been trampled, they've been destroyed by their own sin. But, but Jesus is the true and faithful vine that flourishes under the Father's care. He's the one who rebuilds the vineyard. He, he grafts into Himself those who turn to Him and who abide in His love. Here's language, abide in my love, says the vine, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So this garden the vineyard of love that we are made for is restored in Jesus. And this desire that this passion between a man and woman in its proper place just sings that creation song. Just sings it. So let's keep listening. Um, this poetry has a way of keeping our attention, doesn't it? hope it does. And uh, it's, it's going to get a little steamier, but don't be embarrassed by that. You can read ahead. Um, it's God's, God's story. He wants us to enjoy what he's given so that we might look forward to into all the more of the joy and the love that we have in Christ. Um, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we have just embarked into this beautiful landscape of poetry and we ask that you would draw us deeper into a relationship with you Lord, if there is one here who has not turned to you in repentance, acknowledging that they have distorted and misdirected these good desires in all sin, through selfishness and pride, Lord, may they do that now. May they turn to you in repentance, trusting that you have done the repair work and only you could do this. 
washing, cleansing uh, from the desires of sin. Lord, we pray that you would move us closer to your heart as we consider the love that our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, has for us. Lord, that's the song we're hearing and the song that you've shown us and we'll continue to listen to over these next few weeks. Go before us, guide our steps, guide our, our processing and applying of this word to our lives. We are grateful for it in Jesus' name, amen.